Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, December 5th. I'm Hannah Floor. Just over two weeks ago, on November 20th, a landslide came down in Wrangell over Zamovia Highway. It's a main road that runs along the coast of the island. It took down two family homes and killed at least five people. It was the deadliest landslide in recent Alaska history. For people who were stranded in their homes beyond the slide, it was a night of confusion and fear. As Anna Canny reports, that confusion gave way to an improvised evacuation where neighbors helped each other to safety. On the evening of November 20th, the rain that had been soaking Wrangell for days grew even stronger. Angie Flickinger was in her house on Zamovia Highway that night, listening to it pound on the roof. All of a sudden I heard this like very loud sound, like it had been amplified tenfold. It almost sounded like a jet. A half mile up the road, Flickinger's friend Jamie Roberts heard it too. She opened her door to look for a plane, and the sound got even louder. And it got so loud that um, I think I yelled at my husband, and I was like, something is wrong with the jet. It's coming down, and it's coming. I think it's coming down, like, on our house. Just a few hundred feet away, Robert's neighbor, Christina Florschutz, knew exactly what the sound was. She'd heard mudslides before. I didn't have any warning. I heard the noise, and suddenly I'm like a piece of weightless popcorn being tossed around all over the place and slamming into things. And and then I don't remember any more for a while. That night, a burst of heavy rain drenched the already sodden hillside around mile 11 of Zamovia Highway. And just before 9 p.m., the earth gave way. A flow of mud roared down the hillside and buried the homes of the Florschutz family and the Heller family who lived across the road. The Hellers and their two daughters were later found dead along with Christina's husband, Otto Florschutz. It was the deadliest landslide in recent Alaska history. From the beach that night, Roberts could see the silhouette of a big pile of debris just up the coast, and she could smell it. Like Christmas wreaths, you know, so it was a very overwhelming conifer smell. She had fled to the beach with her husband and son just as the slide came down. The family was badly shaken. The heavy rain was soaking through their clothes, but they were afraid to move. There were some loud cracking noises on the hillside. So we figured if we just stand in this one spot and are quiet, we'll be able to know which way are we going if more starts coming down the hill. Back on the road, almost everyone else had no idea what had happened. Flickinger lives about a half mile away from where the slide came down. She thought maybe a small slide had come down somewhere near her property. That had happened before. But with her headlamp, she couldn't see much of anything. The power went out, and I went outside. Um, the creeks were just raging, and it was so noisy outside. But never in a million years thought it would be what it was. The slide had taken down landlines and internet, along with the electricity. And that far out of town, the cell reception is spotty. Flickinger couldn't get through to anyone who could tell her what had happened. So she started to get ready for bed. Just as I was doing that, my phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was a friend in town, and she told me that there had been a big slide, like a major slide. But even as word of the slide traveled around, there was still mass confusion in the first few hours. People didn't know where to go. Some went towards the slide with flashlights and hand shovels. Others fled in the opposite direction, searching for a flat place to camp out. And some stayed in their houses, waiting in silence and preparing to make a quick escape. Search and rescue teams eventually arrived to evacuate people, but it still took them hours to find everyone in the pitch dark. They found Flickinger and Roberts wandering around on the road. 
they sent everyone to a neighbor's backyard dock. A ferry was waiting there, pinned up against the dock by strong winds. Evacuees waited on board for three hours, bobbing in the nasty weather, waiting for more people and piecing together the night's events through the search and rescue chatter on the radio. We had heard that a couple neighbors had been impacted and that it, it likely wasn't good. I think we were all already grieving. By the time the ferry set off for town, 19 people were on board. They got to Wrangell close to 4 a.m. And when they got cell service, Robert's phone was flooded with messages from her own friends and from the friends and family of her neighbors, the Hellers and the Florschutz. Basically, my message was like, I have not seen them. It would be a miracle, you know, if people were able to make it out of there. Somehow, Christina Florschutz did. She woke up beneath a piece of roof from her destroyed house. She staved off hypothermia by wrapping herself in a bag of fleece that was nearby in the remains of her crushed sewing room. And at daybreak, she climbed out and started to make her way across the debris field. And I see hats coming through the trees. And I thought, people, <laughs> boy, am I glad to see you. And they heard me yell and they came and got me. Floorshoot says she'll look for a new home in Wrangell somewhere on flat land. Roberts will be looking for a new place, too. Her house isn't damaged, but she can hardly stand to be inside for more than a few minutes. But I just keep being like, I'm alive and I have my family. The rest, she says, they can figure out later. With help from Colette Zarnicki and Caroline James, I'm Anna Canny in Wrangell. Search efforts for the Wrangell landslide are ongoing. The third Heller child, Derek, remains missing. Petersburg's local tribe will negotiate with borough manager Steve Giesbrecht to buy nearly eight acres of borough land. The borough assembly voted unanimously at yesterday's regularly scheduled meeting to allow a direct sale to the Petersburg Indian Association, or PIA. The tribe plans to build a subdivision of rental properties on the land with 40 to 60 units. Assembly member Jay Stanton Gregor made the motion to sell the land directly to the tribe. PIA has larger housing goals to uh, try to support the community. I think right now this method of doing so makes sense to um, help them push that project along and therefore helping the community. The vote was complicated by confusion over the specific pieces of land for sale. The eight acres that PIA wants to buy have never been subdivided. It appears as multiple pieces of land on some borough maps. But according to Community Development Director Liz Cabrera, it is one single piece of land that was carved out of an even larger chunk of land. Cabrera says it needs to be subdivided before it can be sold, which the tribe has looked into. PIA has already gone through the process of hiring a surveyor and having a legal survey done, but that survey hasn't been approved yet. So you would never actually sign off on the deed or anything until we actually have a survey and a legal description. PIA's survey is scheduled to go before the Planning and Zoning Commission this month. The commission has authority to approve subdivision plats on its own. Meanwhile, Borough Manager Giesbrecht plans to negotiate a price for the land with PIA officials. Recently changed borough code allows federally recognized tribes to buy borough property for less than its assessed value. If they can prove, they'll use the land for public good. In August, the borough sold PIA a small parcel of land on 12th Street for about 15% below its assessed value, voting unanimously in favor of the move. The land in question sits on either side of North 8th Street and straddles a popular walking trail 
that connects downtown Petersburg with the ball field and whale observatory. PIA Council President Chris Morrison said the plan is to have a 50-foot-wide corridor of land along the trail that stays in borough ownership. We value the trails. We do not wish to own the property on which the trail has been constructed. The plat that we surveyed has a 50-foot width along that trail. Morrison says this new subdivision could include a mix of single-family homes and duplexes. The rentals will likely include some affordable housing units. They would be available to all, but tribal citizens would have preference. Petersburg has a housing shortage. A survey earlier this year by a housing task force found the town will need more than 300 new or refurbished homes over the next decade. Scott Kendall, the architect of Alaska's ranked choice voting system, filed a new complaint yesterday, this time alleging that opponents of ranked choice are using an Anchorage church as headquarters of their campaign to repeal the voting system, despite swearing under oath that they are not. This is the third complaint Kendall has filed with the Alaska Public Offices Commission against Anchorage pastor Art Mathias and faith-based organizations he's affiliated with. It is based in part on secret recordings from a man Kendall's team hired to pose as someone interested in collecting signatures to get the repeal measure on the ballot. The undercover plant went to Wellspring Ministries in South Anchorage last month and met with a campaign contractor, the complaint says. It also says a church employee handed him the signature booklets. Kendall claims the ranked choice opponents have violated state campaign disclosure laws while also abusing the church tax status. I know that none of those groups, according to the IRS, are supposed to get involved in politics, and yet they're running politics out of their church building using church staff. At an APOC hearing last month and in documents, Matthias has said repeatedly that Wellspring Ministries and Wellspring Fellowship are entirely separate from the ballot measure campaign. Attorney Kevin Clarkson represents Matthias and other Alaska opponents of ranked choice. He says Kendall is harassing the opposing campaign with multiple complaints. He says the campaign contractor rents space from Wellspring. At most, Clarkson says the campaign may have been late reporting that expense. So fine, file a complaint, tell APOC the report's late, and let APOC deal with it. Instead of claiming all these salacious things like Wellspring Ministries is running a shadow campaign. Good Lord. Kendall is asking for the commission to consider the complaint on an expedited basis. The commission says it will rule on his first complaint by January 5th. The anti-ranked choice ballot groups say they hope to finish collecting the required signatures by the end of the year. During the holiday season, the governor's mansion in Juneau is decorated with a tree from the Tongass National Forest. Each year, a different southeast community provides the tree. This year, it was Ketchikan's turn. Jack Darrell followed the tree's journey from summit to sea and has this story. We're hiking towards Sovis Lake. There are eight members of the U.S. Forest Service, two reporters, and one pastor. Ketchikan is on the other side of the mountains. We come up over a ridge, and there, across the muskeg, is a 16-foot-tall, majestic Sitka spruce. The spruce is about to become part of an annual tradition. It's called the Together Tree, and it's a collaboration between many of the communities in southeast Alaska. The Forest Service sends the tree, with the help of the Coast Guard, to the state's capital, where it will stand on the veranda of the governor's mansion 
wreathed in ornaments and twinkling lights. Nathan Moores, a Forest Service ranger, says he's been scouting out this tree since he heard that Ketchikan would be providing this year's Together tree. The last time Ketchikan was tapped for the tradition was 2019. When they get to Juno, they could take off a foot or two. That way it'll start sucking up water again. Moore's unshoulders his chainsaw. Ken Truitt of the Alaska Native Cape Fox Corporation steps up first. Somewhere below, a creek is rushing. He pulls out a Bible. Our people come from the Tongass tribe, the Tongass National Forest. We tell our people, our young ones, that the sea is our pantry. This is where we get our meat from. If we look around, we're surrounded by evergreen. Evergreen is everlasting. It, it's always there. It's never going to die. So I thought about we're getting ready to take down a tree that Mother Earth has provided us with. Truett offers a prayer for the tree and those standing with him beneath it. This tree is going to go to the governor, am I correct? So my prayer is that this tree, once it goes into the governor's mansion, may the fragrance come out of that tree. That anytime anybody walks by it, they can smell it. And they can know that it came from the forest. If it's decorated, may each one of those decorations mean something to each one of those that might have put something under there. Later, Truett says this was a new experience for him. Didn't many a blessing, but not for a tree. After the tree's been blessed, Moores and Megan Smith, another ranger, get to work. It takes six people to carry the spruce down the muddy slope. As it's being loaded in the Forest Service truck, the falling rain begins to mix with snow. It's as if the weather itself is trying to get into the holiday spirit. After that, it's driven back towards town. The Coast Guard cutter Anthony Pettit is headed to Juneau on routine operations. As is tradition, they offer to take the tree with them. Hi, the tree, yeah. This year's Together tree is hauled up on chains by the Anthony Pettit's hydraulic winch. The Forest Service and Coast Guard personnel huddle together in the cold rain and snow and watch as the tree above their heads moves from land to water and then is lowered into the cutter's hold. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.